Friends, colleagues, and brain enthusiasts, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Dr. Liana Machado from the University of Otago. 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 Oh. So close. I was so close. (laughs) University of Otago. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you've been all over the world, basically, and and Vancouver, you're joining us in studio, which is kind of fun, uh, to the extent that this room is our studio today. I don't even know (laughs) why I said that, but um, you are here for just a very short amount of time, and you've graciously blessed us with some of it. So for that, we're very thankful. Um, Why don't we, I mean, dive right in. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Lana? I thought we can talk a little bit about cognitive functioning and how it changes as we grow older and um, with brain disease and also talk a little bit about what you can do about that. Excellent. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited because, uh, Liana, some of your work is work that I cite quite frequently. <laughs> so, Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really excited to pick your brain today. I, I'm really looking forward to it. So why don't we start off with really just a simple and basic, what happens to your brain as it ages? Well, as you grow older, um, you start to see declines in the volume of the brain. That's just a part of normal aging. It already starts to happen uh, in your 20s. Um, And in particular, your frontal lobe is affected. That's the sort of front part of your brain that's particularly important for cognitive functioning. Um, You also see some declines in uh, brain blood flow. So you have reductions in blood flow in the brain as you grow older. That's just a normal part of aging. Uh, And these, both of these, the structure of the brain uh, declining and also uh, blood flow declining, both have negative impact on your cognitive abilities. So a lot of people as they grow older, uh, and in particular if they've had a stroke or or other neurological disease, uh, they start expressing difficulties with a variety of cognitive functions, just not able to think as well as they used to. And uh, this is something that can be quite problematic for people and affect their quality of life. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's sort of a part of aging but it's the the maybe uglier part of it yeah you said that you said they, the brain starts shrinking as early as 20 in your oh. 20s oh my goodness it's sort of peaks in your early 20s and then um starts to deteriorate uh okay. from there and so what's uh what's the what, what's the impact of like the size of the brain, like what, what's that do for us cognitively? Does it mean we're losing parts of our brain or just, why is our brain shrinking? Like <laughs> yeah. It's falling off. What's going so on? You don't, yeah, you don't lose any parts. Um, <laughs> different parts are affected differently. Mm. Um, like your uh, more central parts, what we call subcortical structures, um, they're less adversely affected by this. Um, your frontal lobe in particularly is adversely affected by it. Uh, but it's not like any parts go away. Mm. You still have them and they still function. Uh, but for so- some people, as you grow older, uh, you may find, uh, you, you won't be aware of it happening, uh, but uh, you may find that as their brain's deteriorating, they're now starting to use other brain areas they weren't using before to do the same kind of cognitive task to try to boost their function. I mean, okay. function's declining, but by recruiting other areas, you can sometimes keep it, uh, it, it essentially as good as you can. Yeah, like functioning. Yeah. So you're saying essentially with, when it comes to the brain that size matters? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Not only size matters. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Okay. Not only size matters, but it is important there. And so, I mean, is that a function of that 
uh, this kind of like neuroplasticity the idea that our brains are growing as we're younger and then they just kind of plateau at that age is that more or less what's going on yeah so it's also true that your plasticity is declining um, so yeah your brain's really plastic when you're a child and um, and then it sort of also peaks uh, you know around that same time I guess I don't know exactly yeah. um, the relative points but um, but yeah you start to see reductions in plasticity as well and that can be part of the problem uh, in terms of people who are having say like long-term memory difficulties um, there's just a little less plasticity mm -hmm. and if you aren't able to retain that change that is critical to um, if you learn a new skill or you learn a new fact and you want to be able to retain that yeah uh, you have to have that plasticity there to be able to hold on to it right uh, so that can also be a problem as people grow older although my particular research uh, isn't focusing specifically on that but more on the sort of cognitive control so when you're engaged in complex cognitive thinking the kinds of things that really involve the frontal lobe in okay. particular so what are some examples of uh, cognitive control. Yeah, cognitive control. Uh, well, the kinds of things uh, could involve, like, um, let's say you're driving down the road and um, you're approaching a red light and you're going to need to press the the uh, brake. That might seem like a pretty straightforward thing if there's only one light in front of you. But uh, if you grew up in, say, Los Angeles, where I grew up, there might be a series of seven lights all within your visual field. And some of them may be red and some of them may be green. And you may need to try to figure out which is the one that you're hitting next. And is that <laughs> one red or green? And, and, um, and that sort of sea of distractors of red and green lights. Uh, and that kind of thing can become more problematic as you grow older. It can become a little more difficult. Um, other examples would be um, if you take, say, like working memory, um, a simple example is just adding up numbers in your head. Um, I play golf, but not particularly well. <laughs> and that means at the end of my round, I need to add up uh, rather large numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have good working memory, you might be able to quite quickly add up all those numbers and hold your current results and add on the next number and keep going as you go. Yeah. Uh, but if you're having a little bit of trouble with that, then um, that could become a little bit more challenging over time. Yeah. Yeah, I. Whenever I play, the numbers get too big, so I just <laughs> <laughs> I don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just out there having a nice walk. It's no longer working memory when you're playing golf. It's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just work <laughs> when I'm playing. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, golf is a good example of. Um, the kind of thing I'm interested in, uh, this sort of cognitive control, uh, if you look at sports examples, golf is a really good example because it's all top-down control, meaning you know, it's not like when you're playing ping pong you know, like table tennis uh, is all very reflexive. Something comes at you, you yeah. keep hitting it. It's very easy to do. <laughs> um, but golf is all top down. There's nothing moving. Yeah. It's all up to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, that's the kind of thing that involves that more kind of cortical function. It just takes a little more thinking skills to get it right. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'd love for you to explain because I'm, I'm actually trying to teach a course right now on top down and bottom up processing. And, I, and you mentioned top down when you're talking about golf. Could you, is there a way that you could explain that I mean, simply what top down and bottom up is, uh, like what kind of pr what processing that is in the brain? Yeah, well, a simple idea of bottom up would be, um, let's say, uh, well, let's just take a frog, uh, a frog, and there's a fly buzzing around. Uh, so it stimulates his visual system and the frog can just reflexively respond and grab that grab that fly. Uh, again, uh, ping pong for humans could be an example, or anything where there's some kind of sensory change and you're just responding reflexively to it. That's a very bottom-up type process. It doesn't really take, this idea of top-down is generally conceptually involving your frontal lobe, bringing in this idea of cognitive control. 
Uh, and those kinds of reflexive tests, you just don't really need much <laughs> of your frontal lobe. Yeah. But um, when you start moving into things like golf, when you're talking about sport, or uh, working memory we talked about a minute ago where you're adding up numbers in your head and there's nothing uh, but yourself really that's that's yeah. enabling you to complete this task. Um, yeah. So if you're just trying to hold this information in, head, in your head, mm -hmm. you're even just talking about having a conversation, we usually have to use quite a lot of top-down control. So um, for example, you might have been chatting with a friend for an hour and um, towards the end of the conversation, you might be drawing back on things that you talked about early on in the conversation and sort of synthesizing that information and tying it into your, your current topic. These are all things that are involving cognitive control. Mm -hmm. And these sometimes are things that we start to have a little more difficulty with as we grow older. It's just right. a normal part of aging. Yeah, Thank, that's a really good explanation. I'm gonna try and Very use succinct. a little bit of that in my, <laughs> my teaching. Right. Yeah. So one way to, cons just to sort of help our listeners visualize uh, sort of what the brain looks like in terms of its ability over time is uh, one conceptualization that I've heard often is this sort of idea of an inverted U. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that it's really rapidly coming up during your childhood up into your you know early adulthood and then declining much more gradually over time. But does that seem to fit with kind of the work that you've done and, and what you've seen? Uh, yes, it does. Um, I don't generally work with um, children, but I've certainly uh, done a lot of breeding <laughs> of early development. And um, it is what you see. It is what you see when it comes especially to cognitive control type things, but also just looking at the structure of the brain um, where you see it literally developing and your cognitive control is developing with it when you're a child. Uh, you hit your peak sort of in your early 20s in terms of both structure and function of the brain, generally speaking, although it can vary a little bit depending on which function. Uh, and then it starts to decline. <laughs> so it is very much an inverted wah, wah, wah. U. Yeah. <laughs> As you say, it's uh, it, it can depend on the function specifically, uh, but it's a slow decline. You know, it's not like you wake up one day usually <laughs> and you suddenly go, oh wow, my cognitive skills aren't as good as they used to be. It happens slowly, uh, but usually people certainly by the time, well, I'm 47 and I can already feel it happening, unfortunately, <laughs> but usually by the time people in their say 50s or 60s, they really start to notice some changes uh, that they simply aren't quite as quick. Um, although I will point out, um, all the while, you are building on your skills. Yeah. So um, you're building on your knowledge base. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the capabilities that you have that are associated uh, with those gains and don't require that uh, high level of cognitive control as such, uh, those can still be growing, and so I don't mean to make it sound like it's all doom and gloom, <laughs> <laughs> but the more dynamic aspects that rely on the frontal lobe, those tend to decline. Very, very. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm interested. That's actually a really good point that I never thought about the idea like that as you're growing older, your cognition and your brain's kind of working against you, but you're actually acquiring skills as you go. So you're kind of counteracting our balance. It's a balancing act, more or less, of like you're getting more experience and skills as you as you grow and as you get grow older, but you're also your brain's kind of starting to <laughs> grow smaller and the parts of your brain are starting to deteriorate. Not deteriorate. deteriorate a little bit too harsh. No, no. Well, it is deteriorating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just feels harsh to say it's deteriorating yeah. after the age of like mid twenties because now I'm all sad about that. Awesome. Okay. Well, what do we, what do we do then? So what do we do to stop this deterioration if we can? I mean, or at least limit it uh, until later ages, right? Because that's like. Actually, I do want to ask what successful aging is, or how you perceive successful aging, if you have an answer for that. Well, successful aging, I guess, is basically. Um having less decline than your peers, you know? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there's so many different ways of like what people perceive to be successful when it comes to aging, right? And so you're probably more focused on, you know, cognition and how that impacts or how your cognition is declining. And if it's, if you wait till later or if you're, 
can hold off on that deterioration longer, that, that would be considered successful aging probably. Yeah, right? that's right. I mean, it's a little too much, I think, to say, uh, well, I'm going to try to stop my brain from deteriorating yeah. full stop. You know, I want to <laughs> still have maintain the brain of a 22-year-old throughout my life. I mean, you know, naturally, uh, you can't <laughs> you can't and, quite do that. And do you want an eight, a 22-year-old's brain? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pluses and minuses, awesome. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But, um, but yeah, so one of the things that, uh, that my lab's been looking into is um, exercise as a way to try to we're not looking at the structure of the brain specifically I run a cognitive lab uh, but we have been looking at brain blood flow which gives you some kind of indication about the physiological state of the brain uh, and also cognitive functioning so that's one thing we've been looking at is uh, the benefits of exercise in terms of brain blood flow and also in terms of cognitive performance awesome. and what are the outcomes <laughs> is, is being physically active really beneficial for cognitive health yeah, well, the data we have um, says suggests yes. Um, so we found some evidence that uh, people who exercise more regularly show cognitive benefits. We've also looked at some short-term effects where people perform better after a brief bout of exercise. But um, arguably, the most important thing is looking at the longer-term effects. So if you exercise regularly, meaning, uh, well, the guidelines in New Zealand are at least 30 minutes, at least five days a week. Um, I think you guys in Canada have um, at least 150 minutes uh, mm. per week, which come, the math comes out the same <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, if your frontal lobe is working. Yeah. Um, Do some quick math there. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so exercise seems to be one way to try to improve cognition. And again, you can't really expect to maintain it to the level uh, throughout aging. You know, the, you'll still see deterioration in the brain. But if you can limit that deterioration, if you keep your brain blood flow up, uh, you have some chance of also keeping your cognition up and having more successful cognitive aging. <laughs> right. And so you're, you're talking a lot about this uh, idea of like brain uh, increasing brain blood flow. What uh, are the negative effects? That, like what happens if there's not good brain blood flow? What, what's happening to the brain? Well, in those cases? every time you start thinking, so um, let's say that you try to engage in a cognitively difficult task that involves uh, the frontal lobe, uh, your neurons start firing and um, they need resources right away. Uh, so when your neurons start firing, you have this what we call neurovascular coupling, which means that uh, your vascular system, if it's responding properly, uh, rushes blood into the area to provide the neurons with what they need. Uh, so, um, oops, sorry, I lost you. It's all good. No, no, no. no. Oh, you're good. Where was I? I? Yeah. So, uh, so what happens when it's not functioning well? I mean, you said that physical activity makes it uh, blood flow better or increases the brain blood flow. So what happens when you're not getting that? Yeah, so um, basically, uh, not to say that as much blood as possible is good, because <laughs> yeah. you, you don't want to start hemorrhaging or anything like that. Skull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you do need to have enough. And one of the important things uh, in terms of, of the research in my lab, at least, is not just about, uh, say, how fast your blood is flowing, uh, but how well it's responding to changing needs. Uh, so we haven't looked directly at neurovascular coupling, uh, mm. but we have looked at uh, needs related to um, carbon dioxide levels. So um, when you're exposed to higher levels of carbon dioxide levels, your blood should speed up, your blood flow should speed up. And we've looked at that responsiveness. Um, and that's something that you can improve uh, with regular engagement and physical activity. So you can re uh, improve the responsiveness of your vascular system. And that in turn can uh, support better cognitive functioning. Right. That makes sense. And so I'm going to ask you a question that I know you're not going to like me asking. <laughs> How do we determine what's good physical activity? Because you say 30 minutes for five days in New Zealand, we have 150 per week. What is 
the best physical activity. Is there better physical types of physical activity? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that that's going to vary by person. Okay. Um, so if you're someone who's currently not exercising at all, you probably <laughs> don't want to start out by climbing a mountain every day of the week or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not an exercise mm -hmm. uh, specialist by any means, uh, but, uh, but my way of thinking about it is um, if you want to get your heart rate up, you want to get yourself perspiring a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't necessarily have to go all out in the beginning. In fact, that's probably not a wise idea if you're not accustomed to it. Yeah. And for some people, just going for a brisk walk on flat ground, that might be enough for them. Uh, for other people who are normally quite active, they may find that's definitely not enough and that doesn't make them sweat or appear to increase their heart rate. Uh, and so they may need to head up a steep hill in order to get that same effect. And if you weren't exercising much and you start, you'll find that over time as your fitness builds, then you might also need to head up a hill in order to get that happening mm -hmm. and so do you see i mean well, i'm gonna ask you more questions about physical activity but when you see people that are you know say on a sliding scale of physically fit so individuals that you know would you'd recommend a brisk walk versus people that you'd recommend you know heavy weight lifting or climbing that mountain for every day right uh do you see that each step up that ladder of physical fitness that you're seeing better cognitive responses and better blood flow uh, well, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah. Um, there's some suggestion that people who are currently sedentary can benefit more. Um, so they'll maybe have more room for improvement, and so they may show greater benefits. Mm. Uh, I don't know that you could expect that if you exercise regularly, you'll just continually improve your cognition, <laughs> if you know what I mean, yeah. as opposed to maintain it at a relatively higher level compared to your sedentary peers. Right. Uh, so... Uh, but that's not to say you shouldn't keep doing it because <laughs> yeah. that way you can keep maintaining it. Yeah. There's, think about the stereotype. I mean, we can all think of an athlete off the top of our head who is obviously very physically fit, but may not be the brightest bulb. <laughs> so at some point yeah. you well, thought though. That's right. That's, a good, that's also a good point is what are we considering, you know, optimal cognitive functioning? How are we measuring cognitive functioning? Yeah, that's, wonderful question. that's right. There's, there's how you're measuring cognitive um, functioning, but if you don't mind, I'll just dip into what yeah, you please. referred to about um, not the brightest bulb. Um, <laughs> there's something uh, called cognitive reserve. So some people, uh, if you're if you're naturally quite bright, you might say, um, you might not see as much benefit from the exercise. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, because I will point out that in addition to cognitive benefits, you're also seeing physiological benefits that are quite good for your health more broadly. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't say that you can say, oh, I'm just naturally bright, so I can sit on the couch all day, and that'll be I've fine. got all these cardiovascular <laughs> heart disease. I've got like all these diabetes and things like that, but, but I'm really good functioning cognitively, right? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's always these negative effects physically, for sure. Yeah, yeah so it can be really important to to look at people's starting point in terms of their cognitive ability uh, and to factor that in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so the other question, I, I really, that's really interesting. I've never heard of cognitive reserve before. That's kind of interesting to see like that there's, there's differences. Um, what was the question? Oh, how are you measuring? How are you measuring the like cog who's functioning better cognitively, right? Are we just saying, you know, there's a million things that you could say whenever it's, you're functioning cognitively, but I'm, my general inclination is that is it actually important for everyday function for everybody to have, you know, be better in certain tasks cognitively? And um, what tasks do you kind of look at in your work? Yeah, so we usually look at a series of different tasks. Um, one basic task that we tend to include just involves seeing things and pressing a button, and that's like a control task that doesn't mm -hmm. involve cognitive control. It's just a relatively easy task uh, that shouldn't really require frontal lobe function as such, uh, beyond just basic motor function. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then we make comparisons with some more cognitively challenging tasks. So um, one of the cognitive functions that we like to look at uh, is inhibitory control. Uh, I know that sounds like a big word that maybe people <laughs> don't think about it. I mean, inhibition you can think of on a basic level is sort of like um, if you go to a party and um, you see a friend who's wearing a terrible dress or you know somebody <laughs> um, you know who does something. Uh, that you think is quite ridiculous in some way, you might use your cognitive control to not say what you're thinking. <laughs> now, some people might be aware that if you develop, say, Alzheimer's disease, with, which negatively impacts on the frontal lobe, or if you have a stroke that affects your frontal lobe, you may find that your inhibitory control is not working so well, and you have a tendency to actually blurt out those thoughts that you would have, in the past, um, mm. held back. Uh, so that's kind of like a day-to-day -day example of inhibitory control. Yeah. Uh, when you're driving a car, you're often using inhibition in that you have all these different things going on, all this sensory information coming in, and as a driver, you're trying to figure out what to prioritize. Uh, you can respond reflexively to everything as it comes in, but you'll probably get in a car wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, you decide for the current situation, I'm going to prioritize that, I'm going to prioritize that, I'm going to respond to that, I'm not going to respond to that because I don't need to, even though it might be the most visually salient thing in your, or the thing that's attracting your attention the most, you might think, no, I just need to ignore that. That's not, not a hazard in my driving situation. Right. Uh, so you're constantly using inhibitory control and something else which is uh, switching so you're sort of switching between the different things and in terms of this prioritization and that's another thing that we look at so what's your mental flexibility like what's your ability to switch between different task demands switch from one to the other and back and forth uh, especially when it's in an unpredictable way so that you can't plan ahead for what you need to do right yeah uh, so that's one of the other things that we look at wicked um but i mean the big thing for me is is thinking about what do, what do these tests really do for the everyday person? You know, you're 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 bringing people in uh, to these labs and you're you're hooking up to do tests, right? Uh, and these tests are quite simple in nature, or they might be more demanding, as you said. Do they really relate to what we do on a daily basis? Can you say that you know, uh, touching? Uh, you said you just hit responding by hitting a button. Is that kind of just synonymous to you know using your smartphone and just responding to ads or like clicking the X whenever an ad pops up on your computer? Is that like the kind of like implication in real life or is there bigger implications here? Well, that would be an implication, I guess, <laughs> although I haven't run that study. Yeah. Um, there are some studies out there looking at relationships between inhibitory control and uh, driving mistakes and, and accidents. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so using, say, simulators as well as on-road uh, testing, okay. uh, where you see that people with better inhibitory control tend to perform better on the driving tasks as well. Uh, that's just sort of making uh, okay. some real-world connections. Right. So the people that are, I mean, you, you see the people you're in the lab, you're, you measure their inhibitory control, and you see that the people that are better at with inhibitory control are actually better drivers. Yes. Are yeah, reduced, basically. Make know. less driving mistakes yeah. and perform better. That's And that's really cool. Like yeah, that's that, not my data. Yeah, 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 up, of course. Yeah, but that's, like, that's an example of how you can kind of take that and, you know, implement it in real life and yeah. say this could be something that's impactful. Well, this is a this is one of the perpetual problems that is almost impossible to disentangle at times from cognitive research is, you know, how does looking at something and responding to a button translate directly into performance on a real world task? And I think the reality is that it probably doesn't, but it gives us a good indication of, you know, because when you're doing these things, so many other things are happening, yeah. right? So, but when you're able to do you know well on this task we can say okay this one component of your overall cognitive ability 
is being sort of shown here in this in this paradigm that we're using, for mm -hmm. example. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the way it. Yeah, that's right. My background's in cognitive psychology. So, I mean, cognitive psychologists like to really break things down. If you just take something like driving a vehicle, uh, it involves so many different kinds of cognitive functions. There's so much going on. And it doesn't really allow you to have a clear understanding of what someone's sort of cognitive profile is actually like. Um, so uh, across individuals, say, uh, you know, let's just say, well, maybe I'm really good at inhibitory control, but my switching skills aren't so great, so I tend to uh, sort of perseverate on a task and not be so good at taking on something new. And maybe the person next to me uh, it has the opposite patterns, it just as your natural you know, cognitive profile. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that cognitive psychologists do like to do, is break these down and really try to understand, okay, what is this person good at and what are they having difficulties with? Uh, but it is true that that means then once you move it into a really complex real complex real world task, you're talking about a whole bunch of those functions together. And if somebody's say just having a little bit of difficulty with one of the functions, maybe somehow it can kind of wash out or compensate in some way and it can all work out. Uh, but say when you take aging where you have more global decline uh, in brain structure uh, and also cerebral blood flow, uh, you tend to see uh, uh, sort of more global decline in cognitive functions as well. So when it comes to the more complex frontal lobe type con cognitive functions, you tend to see difficulties ac across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess what we should really think about here is where does physical activity and other, other lifestyle factors and behaviors, how do those impact these directly? And we've talked a little bit about blood flow, but, you know, how is it that we can translate from sort of the task in the lab out into the real world? And do, should we expect that physical activity will, or, or diet or something of that equivalent, will actually benefit people in these real world situations? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it can be hard actually to uh, get at that. As you said, it's, it's quite challenging to actually get at that. Um, one of the things that uh, we found recently is um, a relationship between uh, positive mood profiles uh, following engagement exercise. And that's been sort of exciting because uh, it, you don't then have to try to understand about something as complicated as, say, driving a vehicle and how that will be impacted exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know, people feel more energetic, they feel, uh, they feel less tense after exercise. And so that right away uh, shows something that people can kind of grasp onto as something good <laughs> associated <laughs> with exercise. And an immediate reward, too, I think. Because a lot of this is you know, cog talking about cognitive like, deterioration. That's not something you're going to see tomorrow or you know, the same day. No, and a lot of times, because it happens so slowly, um, sometimes people don't really even notice that mm -hmm. they're changing, you know. Uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it takes a loved one to be able to point out, uh, you know, this isn't working as well as it used to be. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily something that somebody notices in themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas mood, uh, yeah, as you say, that you can notice that straight away mm -hmm. if you have a positive impact on your mood. Well, you know, there's <laughs> drive around see the old drivers and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> should they really be driving? But they're, they're not removing themselves. They're not taking themselves off the road, right? Sometimes it requires somebody else to say, hey, you're not doing this as well as you used to. Yeah, or You don't have the brain of the 22-year-old. You can't rip around. Mm -hmm. You know, you go on 30 down you know, a main strip is not, you know, that's not good driving. That's even unsafe. That's yeah, yeah. Well, one of the issues that uh, our aging societies are going to have to deal with is um, the fact that 
we often, uh, perhaps in Vancouver, where I am right now, um, you have pretty good infrastructure in terms of public transport. Yeah. But uh, say where, where I live, it's only about 120,000 people. So our public transport's not that great. And as mm -hmm. our society ages and you have more and more people in that group where um, there is a fair bit of cognitive decline, it may be normal cognitive decline even, but it's sufficient enough that it may be questionable as to whether driving a motorized vehicle is a good idea, uh, but there may be no alternatives for getting right. around. So it's something that um, many, many uh, cities are going to have to try to figure out how to deal with our aging society. And quite soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that actually, I think, beautifully comes back full circle when we're talking about, you know, we're using this example of driving, sort of like a cognitive process and function, but we're actually working to engineer physical activity out of our, you know, daily lives. So we're removing, we're removing the need to be physically active by just giving everybody a car and building big roads. Whereas in the reality, what we could be doing is implementing, you know, smart civic strategies to build bike lanes and build walking paths and and encourage people to be physically active as part of their everyday normal lives and that will have the compounded effect of dealing with some of these long-term aging issues yeah that's right if we can have better facilities to allow people to exercise uh, not just when they're older but throughout their lives starting yeah. in childhood um, then you know people can form good habits and uh, hopefully be able to maintain those into their older age mm -hmm. and in the event that driving is no longer uh, a sensible option to hopefully be able to use uh, alternatives, including physical activity, uh, to try to get around. Definitely. Um, I have one question yeah. uh, specifically about who would benefit most from this? Because you, you, you mentioned uh, cognitive reserves, and so it's saying there's some people that might you know benefit more from physical activity. Um, who benefits the most from you know physical activity? Yeah, well, data suggests that older adults do tend to benefit more than young adults, uh, but I would point out uh, that young adults benefit too. <laughs> um, but older adults, given the cognitive decline that happens naturally, there is more room for improvement. Uh, and so it makes sense, I think, that you could see larger benefits within older adults in many cases. Uh, there is some indication that uh, that women tend to be more physically inactive uh, and are less likely to meet the physical activity guidelines, uh, and they do tend to show uh, stronger relationships between uh, uh, physical activity uh, engagement and uh, cognitive benefits. And, um, and so, for that, that's a, that's a really interesting point. That I mean, is it because of the gender, or is it because of just the fact that they're not? exercising as much that they're benefiting because you, you you did mention that you know people that don't exercise as much would might see more benefits and so that might suggest that that's what's going on with uh, you know females seeing more benefits there yeah i mean i, I suppose there's a couple questions you have to ask there so um one question might be well why are why are women less mm. active to yeah. begin with what is going on in terms of our societal expectations or is there something going on that's yeah that honestly surprised me to hear to that i didn't i wouldn't sedentary. have thought that yeah, I mean, um, sorry, it's not exactly what you were asking, but one of the things that concerns me, if you look at um, kind of stereotypical female clothing and shoes, they're often quite prohibited. Like, they're, they're not, they don't yeah. exactly um, uh, make regular physical activity or immediate physical activity easy. Mm -hmm. um, and so that might be one of the factors that's leading to women exercising less. Right. Uh, but it could well be the case that you see the stronger exercise cognition effects in many cases in women, uh, literally because they tend to be more sedentary to begin with and therefore have more room for improvement. Right. I'm definitely anti-heels here because heels are like actively trying you to get you to not walk, yeah. which is the weirdest I, function of I, a shoe I, in the world. I couldn't even imagine <laughs> walking, let alone like being physically active, like climbing stairs, because that's all, that's often, a, you know, one way that we can intervene in yeah. somebody's lives and say, hey, you know what? 
Did you take the stairs today? Did you take the stairs? Why didn't you <laughs> yeah. take the stairs instead of the elevator or whatever? But good Lord, trying to do it in heels? I mean, <laughs> I don't, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that uh, as a society, now that we have a better understanding about the importance of regular physical activity and we're aware about um, how much sedentary behavior uh, we've developed mm -hmm. in our societies, I feel like we should move away from uh, certainly footwear that uh, kind of prevents yeah. uh, physical activity, but also clothing, you know? Mm -hmm. well, do we need to make that big of a deal about people wearing a suit? Why can't people wear comfortable clothing so they could jog home from work afterward? Yeah, yeah. that's a really good point. Those are things that you, know, that you don't think of you actually changing. It's just kind of a natural, like this culture or the society that you're in, you just assume to wear these clothes or, or wear these shoes. And you wouldn't really think of that. I wouldn't have thought of that as a psychologist to think about, you know, how's this impacting physical activity? Uh, like the clothes you choose to wear on a daily basis. And they really do. Yeah, they do. They yeah. really do. They can yeah. be really prohib like prohibitive in what you ch choose to do throughout your day and how you tend to, you know, mm -hmm. walk or take that, take the elevator versus, you know, walking up the stairs. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I had a question for you and now it's just gone. God damn it. <laughs> hey, you don't even have jet lag. I know. I was just about to say. <laughs> you think I was the jet lag one here. Um, so uh, one question I have, uh, maybe you can shed some light on it for me is, uh, and this goes back to the, the issue of, you know, maybe females being a little less physically active, at least according to the guidelines that we've talked about. Do you think that sort of some of the ways that women are physically active isn't actually getting accounted for? Well, I guess you'd have to look at that, uh, but for the kind of data that's most common, um, it's including, you know, quite a range. So I'm not so sure if that is the case, but you do yeah. always have to consider that. Is there some way that the questions are biased more towards the kind of physical activity that men do? But given that it tends to include things like brisk walking uh, and kind of in include pretty much a pretty wide spectrum. I, yeah. I don't know that that's actually the case. I do fear that it's real. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. I was sort of setting you up with that question in some <laughs> way. But one of the things is, is thinking about ways in which physical activity can occur in, you know, I, there's a distinction in my mind between physical activity and exercise. And so I think when people hear being physically active, they immediately jump to being exercising like oh i need to go run on a treadmill or something or yeah i think that's one of our biggest problems um that a lot of times uh i do uh public lectures reasonably often and a lot of times people think that you're talking about hardcore exercise mm -hmm. that it has to involve something hardcore uh my advice is literally you know <laughs> damn it drake Sorry. Literally, keep going. You're, that's awesome. You're on really yeah. point too. That it has to involve uh, hardcore exercise of some kind. My mm -hmm. advice is um, literally you should just become active as often as you can. For example, if you're going to the grocery store and it's only 10 minutes away, walk. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to your friend's house, walk. If you're uh, needing to go, go uh, to another level, take the stairs. Uh, and if you just do this as often as you can, pretty soon you'll realize that you've moved out of being inactive and into being active and meeting the guidelines without having put that much effort in beyond making sure that you're using your legs yeah. instead of your car. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, something that you mentioned there, you know, walking to the grocery store, not only are you walking there, but you're also walking home with your bags, which becomes a form of resistance training. Yeah, so, that's right. Especially in older populations where we are really concerned about, you know, things like frailty, not just walking, but, you know, carrying grocery bags develops, you know, 
decent shoulder muscles, arm muscles, core strength. Balance, balance. maintaining your balance as you go because now you're carrying something. And that's really important in terms of preventing falls uh, and preventing injury that may then prohibit you from engaging in exercise in the future. Uh, So yeah, if you keep doing it, then it's more likely that you'll be able to keep doing it, if you know what I mean. It is a little bit of a a use it or lose it situation, I think. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're... If it's built into your daily habits, I mean, what are the reasons that people aren't physically active? I don't have time. I don't, you know, I have other things going on. But the reality is, is you know, if you're building it in, you can kind of alleviate some of those issues right off the bat, in some ways at least. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems uh, for us older generations <laughs> is that, uh, well, when I was a kid at least, um, it was viewed, I think, that exercise or engaging in physical activity It was like a luxury item. Uh, You don't need it, but if you had spare time, you can do this thing. Uh, Instead, children should learn from the outset that exercise or engaging in physical activity is like sleep and eating and drinking water. You need it. You should should engage in it every day if at all possible uh, and not view it as a dispensable thing in the event you don't have time. Well, I just won't do that. Nobody would say, well, I didn't have time to eat today. I just didn't have time to eat. Everybody eats <laughs> and people should exercise too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Leanna, thanks for joining us for the first half of the show. Uh, we've, I know I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed hearing uh, your thoughts on all these things. And I know Drake has actually learned quite a bit. Yes, I it's, have. it's a nice change up to go from <laughs> conversations where he's always got all the inside information I'm learning to <laughs> sort of feeling a little bit at least like it's the other way around. Anyways, uh, enjoy this little musical interlude and we'll be back in a few minutes. Cheers. It doesn't tie in all that much, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I think a lot of people do think is that um, they only use part of their brain. Anyway. <laughs> it's mm. like a common thought, I think, that... Um, yeah, like what part of your brain are you using for certain functions? Well, I mean, it is true that different parts of the brain are relevant to different functions, and so there is truth in that, but... Some people think, and I'm sorry, this is where my brain is so tired right now, I can't think, but... Um, the but 10%. The, 10%, that's yeah. exactly yeah, what I was trying to say. I was like, what was the number again? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, was going to say 1%, but I'm like, that's yeah. too low. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just me. You might use 1%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you only, if you thought you only used 10% of your brain, you might almost start to wonder why you'd bother exercising. <laughs> or not using that much of it anyway, surely. <laughs> no, but that's definitely not true. And I don't know if that comes from... Uh, your brain's made up of neurons um, and also other cells, uh, what's often referred to as support cells. And uh, it's about 10% neurons. And so I don't know if it comes from that. Mm, that's actually <laughs> But you definitely origin. use all of your brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you... those support cells are really important too. <laughs> Lana, what would happen if we were in fact only using 10% of our brain? What would we be looking like? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, would we be dead? <laughs> Well, Most likely. I don't know. When I was a kid, I thought, um, because I believed that fact, and I thought, <laughs> oh, wow, so if I can figure out how to use 
the other 90% of my brain, I might have like superpowers or, you know, <laughs> something amazing. <laughs> but um, if you did only use 10% of your brain, uh, since I have an interest in stroke, yeah. um, it could be. So when you have a stroke, part of your brain dies. Uh, it's deprived of blood and the cells die and you end up with a hole in your brain. Uh, it could be like, you know, rolling the dice. <laughs> the bit of the brain that my, the bit of my brain that died, I wasn't using anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you got 90% to play with. You're, yeah, you're I could t- have several more strokes. I'm still good. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the 90% is not the cognitive reserve. When we were talking about the cognitive reserve earlier, that's mm-hmm. not the 90%. No. Yeah. No. Um, that's, that's actually a great myth. I think that's one that we, I think in the very first episode, we, we brought that I up. I think you may mention it on I'm, your I might episode. Oh, yeah. Maybe on my episode, this. I railed, about, railed on about that. Well, I, I'm actually really excited now to have heard that that might be the origin of that story. <laughs> well, I don't know that. Well, that's okay. Process, we can run with that. Be, yeah. yeah. No, it's <laughs> a good right. it's a good hypothesis. I mean, it's better it's, than what It's better than any that we've heard or come off with I mean, at this point. The other other ideas are like the superhero idea that like all Just humans can only it. do 10% and when you unlock more than that, you can have superpowers like you said. I think that's <laughs> Hilarious, and I love the idea of it. Yeah. But just because you can use your support cells doesn't mean you're super. <laughs> that's that's a great trope. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely, it's really good for movies and television shows, but not necessarily real life. Not real life. Yeah, don't <laughs> don't try and fly when you start like, feeling like you're thinking you more than ten percent of your brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I finally got to eleven. I'm gonna jump off this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, yeah, awesome. Okay, that's great. I mean, yeah, that's wonderful. So, Thank you. So, Liana, we know that you're like, super jet lagged, and that. Uh, we've been asking you a million questions over the last hour, but uh, we know that our, we know that our guests uh, tend to kind of lose energy and kind of wane in their concentration and attention whenever it gets to this kind of part of the, the episode. So we've, we've actually been trying to cut down our episodes to about 45 minutes so that we don't have to have that with our guests each time because uh, attention tends to, to just... You know, yeah, wane. we want to keep people entertained and engaged in our content and in the episode itself. So just keeping it short... Um, Helps out a lot, yeah. yeah. I find that in teaching, actually. I try to do uh, 40 to 45 minutes uh, stints and then mm. get people, get the students, if they're willing, to stand up, get their blood flowing to yeah. the brain, <laughs> get their Perfect. energy back, and then um, we can continue on again. <laughs> yeah. and, and, we, and we sit here for two hours usually on an episode, <laughs> and then we realize that we should have been doing that in the last half tapers off quite slowly, so it's good that we're doing it yeah. tighter. I, I haven't quite gotten to the point of um, forcing them to engage in, uh, in aerobics or anything like that. <laughs> Maybe as I get older and more eccentric, I'll get to that point one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little exactly. fitness class with the, with the class as well. That'd be great. <laughs> Everybody's in there with like skipping ropes doing jump jack, jumping yeah. jacks and stuff like that'd be push-ups in the aisles like, i'd love just, to go to that lecture that'd be sweet. well actually oh, yeah. um i don't know um i don't know about students here but i'm guessing it's a bit the same as uh students at university of otago uh but you know come exam times they often think um i just need to study continually oh, i'm going to yeah. go to the library and i'm going to go there for 10 hours straight and i'm not going to move for 10 hours except go- going to the loo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just going to study 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 and what they don't realize is there's their studying and their learning would probably be a lot more effective if they studied and say two hour stints, if they um, engage in a brisk walk periodically during their studies, they may find that they're learning better actually and they're retaining that information better. Yeah, and I mean, yes, it's the exact same way over here. <laughs> With the students, they absolutely do that. Yeah. Uh, during exam season or midterm season, you usually see a lot more sweatpants 
a lot more uh, like not for the purposes, eyes. Not, not for, for the purposes of jogging. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. For, not for jogging, just because people have yeah. no longer put the effort yeah. in to get clo- like so, like you have sweatpants on already, you might as well yeah, go yeah. for a jog. I know, right? They're set up for it already. There's a reason that they're called joggers. Yeah. <laughs> go out and jog. Yeah, but, I mean, I think it's a really good point. I, with especially that's like a, such an obvious implication of you know cognitive functioning when you're studying for exams or studying for something. Uh, usually all of that self-care just gets thrown out the window when yeah. you're trying to study for things. I'm guessing people actually feel guilty about taking a break to yeah. go for a walk or you know clear their head, uh, get their blood flow up. Uh, and really, they should be thinking the opposite. <laughs> they should be thinking, <laughs> yeah. I want to improve my learning, and I think I should go for a walk and reflect on this material and then go back to the books again. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, just as an aside, um, we've been working on a study where we've actually been investigating uh, self-reported physical activity in the day preceding an exam and correlating their exam performance relative to the class oh, that's awesome. with their physical activity level. So um, look for that paper yeah. in I will. next year, hopefully. I'll look for the results. It would be podcast. so nice to have that out next year. That is, I think yeah. that would be uh, really useful information for students. I mean, I don't know the result yet, but I could imagine that yeah. might be very useful information for students. Yeah. yeah, that along with probably sleep measurements as well, right? Sleep, uh, off the top of my head, yeah. our first our first iteration of the study, this is going to end up being like a two or three experiment study, but mm-hmm. um, the first one, sleep, was what really emerged as the massive predictor. It's like, we always say to get a good night's sleep before you do it, sleep. but no one does. Yeah, <laughs> I remember um, when I was at UCLA for my undergrad, I took a class called Education 180, and um, I learned the most important thing I learned through my whole undergrad. Um, and that was, they didn't try to say never pull an all-nighter, because they probably knew that <laughs> we're going to pull an all-nighter. What they said was, Pull an all-nighter two nights before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, get all that. Uh, it's not recommended, but but if you have to, get all that studying under your belt. And the night before, sleep a full eight hours. Yeah. And I took that on board, and I always pull my late-nighters, hopefully not an all-nighter, but yeah. my late-nighters a couple nights in advance just to be sure I get back. That's to a good really sleep. good yeah. piece of advice I never actually thought of. Well, yeah. it's, it's kind of funny because sleep – like sleep deprivation is so bad for your cognitive functioning. Yeah, like absolutely. it's just awful as you are currently experiencing. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> although you're operating perfectly cognitively to the best of my. <laughs> you, you have no idea how good I normally am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> damn it. She's oh. only using ten percent of her brain. Yeah, yeah. Right now. That's right. <laughs> we'll have to have her back. Yeah, that's the only option. Yeah. We'll go upstairs and we'll, we'll throw you in the lab. We'll do some Stroop tests or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Case study. Um, but yeah, I mean, sleep deprivation is just so awful for your brain. So to try and pull that the night before an exam just seems like an awful idea. That's um, right. So that's a great, that's actually a great little tidbit of advice. Like, hey, if you're going to have one of those late study nights, do it a couple nights before hmm. the big show. Yeah. And then sleep and consolidate the night before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh and throw some exercise in <laughs> yeah. yes, while you're doing absolutely. that all nighter too, if you can, right? That'd be yeah. Nice. And so that doesn't have to be much, like you said. Like just it can be a, a walk, or it could be like you know just standing up and moving around for a little bit, right? Well, that's or right. I mean, students uh, who are trying for that all nighter, um, they may find. I know I did. <laughs> I shouldn't have done it, but I've done it. Um, you may find like, oh, I ended up drinking like eight cups of coffee or something, and then you're all jittery and yeah, not yeah. feeling so well. But if you go for a brisk walk, it will have a similar sort of effect where you can get your blood flow up and you might feel revived again and find that you don't need another cup of coffee Mm. uh, and that might keep you going again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode, Liana. We've had a wonderful time. We've learned a lot. I know I've learned a lot. I'm sure all of our listeners have as well. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, leave us a comment, leave us a review, uh, leave us a few stars wherever you found it. We're available on Apple, uh, Google, and Spotify. Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. I, well, the problem <laughs> is on I'm, Stitcher as well. So. And Stitcher. Yeah. By uh, the sheer grace of God, we have no idea how we're still there, <laughs> but we are. Yeah. Uh, and, Liana, how can people get in touch with you if you'd want to get in touch with people? <laughs> uh, what what lab are you working in if they want to if they're interested in your work? Uh, yeah, you can access uh, my contact details through the University of Otago. Uh, if you can just find my name, Liana Machado. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently in the psychology department at University of Otago and running the neuroscience program there. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's been fun. Yeah, thank thanks so for joining us. Yeah, it was, really, it was really fun. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Thank you.